instructions. Oh. Those are lovely. First of all, it's a pleasure to hear somebody else give me the instructions. <laughs> and you said a few things that were perfectly lovely. I don't mean this to be like, you know, but, but you know what you said that was great? You, there was one line. Did you notice one particular great line? What, what did you notice? That's Sarah Verick, who's actually a minister and a chaplain. <laughs> there you go. And I'll tell you what I thought was a great line. What else did you think? I don't mean for this. I do mean, obviously, for this. Analysis. No, that, that phrase, of course, and then the one about the open hand. You know, I really like that you said about thoughts, <coughs> a thought arises. You said in such a reassuring tone of voice. It was really not new news, but it was so reassuring to hear it phrased that way. It's not a disturbance. Mm -hmm. It's the natural workings of the mind. Mm -hmm. You know, that's so <coughs> uh, important to say uh, as a counteractive to the idea that I'm meditating, I shouldn't be thinking. And we should be. It's yeah. a normal thing for thoughts to happen. Yeah. So, uh, just lovely the way you said it. Seems to be. <laughs> so you can come and give the instructions anytime you like. Oh, thank you yeah, so much. Can we give him an open invitation yeah. to come whenever? Okay, mm -hmm. all right, okay. We never take a formal break. That's normal, fine. Normally in this few minutes before we, I mean, this is one long, it's not that long. We don't need a break. And I actually like to teach into the kind of mind state that's been prepared by sitting. Mm -hmm. So people come and go as they need to. Do you want to say what, just now that you've given the instructions, would be a perfect time to say what you originally <laughs> thought I was coming here for. <laughs> It, it always We're reminds me all of this, aren't we? I think yeah. we are. Yes. Okay. Good. Reminds me of Ram Dass's story about the rabbi who is found wandering and he doesn't know where he's going, and and the police, you know, ask him, "What are you doing here in the middle of the day, wandering around?" And he said, "I don't know." And the <laughs> police said, "Wait a second. Nobody doesn't know what they're doing in the middle of the day. Come with us." And he said, "See." <laughs> <laughs> Today is a little like that. <laughs> so, my name is Clifford Saren. I'm a research neuroscientist at UC Davis at a really cool interdisciplinary center called the Center for Mind and Brain. And for the last seven years, I've been the principal investigator of a kind of wild research project called the Shamada Project, which looked at in many different ways the effects of three months of meditation retreat with a match control group on attention and emotion regulation and stress biochemistry. And this was done in collaboration with about 30 scientists. And Alan Wallace was the teacher who's a Buddhist writer and scholar and translator. And uh, 
we decided, actually, at Sylvia's behest in some sense, uh, a number of years ago, to do a research project here uh, with my graduate students at UC Davis, seeing whether or not in the one-month and two-month uh, intensive retreats that happen in the spring, whether we could sort of replicate some of the findings of this other project. And um, we have um, begun to do so. And what we are needing to do is to acquire data from a meditative community to serve as a kind of comparison group who, for folks who are interested in this, have some experience in it, but also are not in retreat. Because you know, if you give a test twice, to some extent, you'll get better the second time just by practice. So you need to give people who are not in retreat from the same general community that might be in retreat the same exact tests under the exact same conditions. Then you have a control group that actually is somewhat of the distance similar to those who actually were tested at the beginning and end of a retreat. So we have devised a uh, sort of laboratory in a box uh, and a micro-retreat experience where you would come here at 8 in the morning um, on January 5th and um, you would go and you would be uh, You'd have your own room in one of the dorms here, one of the places you can stay when you're on retreat. And we would ask you to use a laptop computer to do about uh, three hours of different tasks. Then you come back January 30th and do it again. And you fill out some questionnaires each time. And we pay you $60 at the beginning and $60 at the end, 20, about $20 an hour. And I'm looking for uh, research volunteers, and I have materials that explain. And we can, I can either take your email at the end um, or uh, give you a four-page questionnaire you would need to fill out and scan and send back to us. But it's coming up pretty quickly. We do this here exactly as we have done it when your people are in retreat. And the opportunity to have days free in the dorms are very few and far between. But if you express interest, it would really be good to have that be a, a commitment that you can make those times. Because I've spoken to about a thousand people and we've gotten about 20 bodies. So, so it, it, it really should represent a kind of, yes, I'm interested. So this is broadly in terms of training of attention and emotion regulation. Does this require totally naive subjects in the sense of never having done a no, retreat? No, not at all. Actually, the, the more practice experience, or we're, we're trying to have the groups roughly equivalent. So ah. it, <clears throat> some people um, could have, as long as you've done one five-day retreat, that would be uh, good. If you haven't done any retreats um, still, and you're interested, still give us your name. Because there are people in this room who I know probably haven't done any retreats but have been coming here for 20 years. Yes, mostly. well, that qualifies. <laughs> <laughs> that qualifies deeply. You can do a retreat and be spun off in space, and you cannot do a retreat and be highly grounded. So 
there is no, it's one of the wonderful complexities of this kind of research. I think that sounds great. You want to see hands or you want them to think about it? Well, when at the end, it will, you'll yeah. come up. Is Anybody that, thought already? Any, any, any takers? One, to, one, two, three, four, five, six. That's great. Fabulous. That's fabulous. fantastic. So the Friday morning. Thursday. Thursday. It's basically eight to, to, by the time you get oriented and consented, it's uh, 40 minutes and then three hours of doing it. So it's four hours, eight to 12. Yeah. If you were part of the control this last summer, you probably want new people. Have you already done it? Yeah. No, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but six people. That's great. Out of we're, a thousand. We're bad. We're, and are you looking for people that have a really solid meditation practice? If you could show them to me, you know, I mean, I don't know who. <laughs> <laughs> Yes and no. <laughs> I, I don't know what that is. <laughs> I just had this thought I should volunteer sometime, but then I immediately had the thought, what if I do poorly? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's not about achievement. It's not about, it's sort of like you put in your time and you see what you get. And, what constitutes solid? Uh, no, but I meant, uh, you know, really daily, always do it. Not, it, it doesn't have to be always. But it could be. It could be, right. You know, it, somebody could be highly obsessive and have a very regular thing, and somebody could be incredibly motley, but lots of <laughs> wisdom. So I, I, personally, I'm in the motley camp, so I... <laughs> And don't sign up. <laughs> we provide you everything. You basically uh, get a box with instructions, and you get your Lynn, own little you have, thing. Do you have a, were you thinking of it, Lynn? Mm -hmm. You have a piece of paper. You write your name, and all those other people have their their hands up. So here, there's a pad. I mean, you want to do that, right? Right now. The old iron is hot. Okay, terrific. So those people have hands up so Lynn see where you are and she'll come around. And the thirtieth is what day? They're both Thursdays? I I They must be Thursdays. I I Third is a Monday. No, 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 no. Well, my, you got to wait for my, my phone to. If you have a calendar or a phone, or, do you have your calendar? The thirtieth is a Sunday. Monday. Monday. You're here on a Wednesday, so this is a group that somehow during the. But it is Christmas. So. Fantastic! I feel so proud. That's wonderful. <laughs> so if you can just um, put your hands so that you're noted. And very, great. very, very, very great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So, I'll tell you what I would have asked you uh, had I not had this eye surgery two days ago, but then I'm <laughs> going to preface it by my personal eye surgery questions. But 
really what I wanted to ask is about, about how do mind habits change? We talk about, I mean, neurologically how do, we've all read the, a little bit cursorily, I think, the National Geographic study where we saw the different parts of the brain light up more with accomplished meditators than they do before and why, and anyway, how does that, how should we understand that picture if you show it to a naive person and you say, well, okay, so the back is lighting up, not the front. What does that actually yeah, mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I, <laughs> you, I could say, don't get me started, but no, you no, have, in fact, gotten me started. <laughs> no, no, but don't, don't, get, don't get started yet, because I have two, well, two, part, two parts. Because there are lots of things to say about that. This is over here, because really we're not looking to be good meditators. We're looking to, I am looking to have a person, I'm looking to be, hoping to be, a person with an expansive enough mind and a, a consolidated enough wisdom to know that everybody is just who they are as a result of myriad circumstances, couldn't be otherwise. And this is what Rumi says, I'll meet you in the field beyond where those comparisons fall away. I also am very interested in the idea of, not, of forgetting about forgiveness, that I forgive you that when the mind is clear enough, there's nobody to forgive. Things are just the way they are. So I want to, know, I want to be able to talk about that a little bit in neurological terms. Very briefly, before we start, when is my memory going to come back? <laughs> and No, no, because seriously, because it's a three-minute question, Cliff. The, all the jokes about older people, their short-term memory, my long-term memory is fantastic. Poetry, second grade teacher, everything is there. My short-term memory is not what it used to be. It's good enough to normally navigate in the world, but it's not what it used to be. What has happened in my brain that it's not, and why is it worse now after the anesthesia, and when is it going to get better? So I don't have a, a concrete answer for that, yeah. but it is a natural occurrence that we often have lapses in immediate recall. Um, but there are two fundamental processes that are involved in memory. One is encoding, and the other is retrieval. So if you don't pay a particular quality of attention to the thing you want to retrieve at the outset, you will not encode it with enough attention to begin with. So it won't be there yeah. that, when you want to retrieve it. So I just put my car keys down. I, don't, yeah, I just put my car so keys down. So if you're actually feeling the press of all what you can hold in your life with the capacity yeah. of aging, yeah. you are functioning on many levels simultaneously, and your agenda, if you made the to-do list that actually is in your head, yeah which is in got a little bit of an impetus from the end of days, it, even if it's unconscious. Yeah. You put your keys down while you're thinking, you know, <laughs> about where you need to go next, and then you don't encode. It's like you've got to get shopping and you forget where you park. I mean, I do this all the time. <laughs> and, and so do you actually stop and say, that's the... Sign B6. B6. <laughs> or do you just get out of your car and you're going to where you're going? Then you come out of the store and you say, now where did I put my car? My memory is failing. 
it. Well, actually, that was a failure of encoding. Okay. And so... See, everybody was reassured. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the other thing you really need to understand is the gist-making that is the reality of our lives. Mm. Ninety, gosh knows, I have no number on what we must forget every day in order to have any quality of life. One of the things that if you ever are in a position where you don't get any sleep, whether it's for work or play or, you know, taking care of a newborn or whatever, part of why you feel so jangled is that you've been unable to forget the detritus of the day. So fundamentally, part of this miracle is that we, every day, bring forward the gist of life. And much of that is a consolidation process that happens when we sleep. And one of the most interesting things to consider is whether or not time sitting is another kind of consolidation in the presence of conscious awareness. So, if the rush component goes down, even amongst the, you know, I mean, we, you can't function in this world with the clocks we have and the commitments we have and the responsibilities we have. If you kind of move through like you're on retreat, then you're going to get run over. So, so and, and if your uh, aesthetic of life is to deeply appreciate each moment, and you'd start by habit deconstructing then you're not going to chunk things conceptually the same, and you're just going to sort of look at the elemental perception. Well, that's not going to give you a good clue to context. I mean, Jack, I think, talks about his short-term memory when he was a monk going. (laughs) So I don't know that, I mean, you know, if you do a retreat, you have all kinds of strange experiences. So now anesthesia, there is some cognitive decline from anesthesia that's measurable and it probably rebounds and there's a whole spectrum of it and that's studied and I didn't do a PubMed search before coming to it. (laughs) (laughs) But if we turn on my iPhone, I could study. No, 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 no. No, 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 I know. I just have to say that. From yesterday till today is better. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that happens is, is that you do not consolidate properly and so you're, and, and it's just a moving target. Yeah. It's very strange, the whole thing, we should really talk about consciousness, but it's really very strange to me that the whole, the whole science of anesthesia, how you cannot be asleep, you can say, Sylvia, roll your eyes up, look down, do this, do that. You hear that, you feel nothing, and you roll your eyes. In the well, directions. did they give you Versed? Or yeah. We, well, Versed is actually mm. absolutely designed to cause you not to remember. Yeah. <laughs> and it has a half-life in your body, so it doesn't just turn off. Okay. So if you had Versed, I mean, I get endoscopies, and my yearly drug experience is Versed, and I love it. It's not bad. <laughs> no, I just... That's what I was going to say about the hallucinogen. You get all kinds of all kinds of uh, colors behind your eyes. And well, now you have a new thing. Do you see differently? The color? Uh, Does color different for you a little? You mean since I had this thing, everything's brighter. 
But did you notice, did you, was it, everything is brighter? Is it the color more vivid? Uh, I, this morning on the way over, I thought it was. Because it's really interesting. You know, as you age, your uh, lens turns more yellow. And yeah. so if you were young and you, there's a suit you can wear that was designed actually for marketing to the elderly. Really? And it weighs about 70 pounds, and it has prickly <laughs> things on the fingers inside this glove that come on you, and the joints are hard to move, and it has a mask on that um, is yellow and kind of cracked, and then it has earplugs where you, it's hard to hear. And they designed it for like 28-year-old ad executives to understand what's the world like if you're, you know... <laughs> I mean, I kid you not. <laughs> and what's very interesting is that the yellow lens doesn't make you see yellow. Yeah. There is a slow adaptation uh -huh. so that you know that things that are white stay white even though there's a yellow filter yeah. on it. Yeah. And that has to do with the extraordinary miracle of what we fill in uh -huh. and how sparse the visual input is in terms of how little gets to our brain from what's out there and how much we rely on prior knowledge. So we do shape from shading, we do form from motion, we do all kinds of things to create the illusion of, you know, stuff out here that hangs together. So this, because we're here, I feel bad talking too much about my own. It'll come back. But you uh, want to talk about neuroplasticity. I want to talk about neuroplasticity, and I want to particularly talk about the increased factor of tolerance and forgiveness and forbearance and compassion in the mind under stress from different irritating things as people are more and more um, enlightened in their practice. Mm. <laughs> How does awareness and changed mind habits, mm. changed neuro firing habits, end up where people say, that's just the way he is? So if you search PubMed on this, you won't find the, that there are too many papers. But we do think about this all the time. And just sort of at, at, at the base level, there is learning, and these practices are a developmental process. This phrase, neuroplasticity, is invoked fashionably, but what we're really talking about is like if we had some clay here and we were saying, can we really talk about that clay is plastic, you can press it? I mean, you can make anything out of clay. Plastic, people talk about plasticity as if you turn it on when you meditate. Mm. You use it. And, and then when you, you know, but maybe you don't turn it on when you do something else. Mm. No, mm. it's always on. So if we take the position that we're a moving average of what we repetitively do, the more you attend to interdependencies. You know, if we were all in training to be Rube Goldberg and see the connections. You all remember Rube Goldberg? Who's too young? Okay, got a couple of too young people. Go so Rube, Rube Goldberg 
is very has made a bunch. There are a bunch of books uh, that capture his cartoons for fantastic contraptions, where you know you have uh, the rat eats the piece of cheese. The cheese was connected to a string. The string goes up and something flops down. And the, you know it's like how do you make a piece of toast? You have fifteen different linkages before the toast pops up, and when the toast pops up, it hits something else that flips something out. And at the end of the day, the fish get fed. <laughs> this is our life. There are tremendous manifold interdependencies and there's this superimposition of what we think is the way things should be, beyond good and bad. I mean, this is, you don't need to, to just hang this up, right? Project it everywhere. Mm. A, val- a given value system is already a conceptual machine that filters, you know, an outcome. So if you engage in a practice that highlights the perception of linkages within a value system, you begin to see interdependencies. And it's learning. I mean, if you have any... (coughs) We're just talking about moving into a domain of skill, qualities of the mind that are not attended to in the education system, in the culture, in the media. I mean, (laughs) and the place they are occasionally attended to is in religion, which often has a sense of dogmatic frame. Because if you just go under the hood of the dogmatic frame, then do you wind up without a structure that sustains hierarchy? And if you do that, then anybody who invested has a problem. So this is far away from neuroplasticity. But it means that the capacity to learn how things go... <clears throat> There's a fantastic movie, and I don't know if it's on YouTube, and it's called How Things Go. And it's basically a Rube Gold... It's a half-hour-long, continuous set up these German filmmakers did in this barn that is a Rube Goldberg. Oh, I saw that. It's, with it's called the way th- it's tires that roll and light a candle and then there's flashing fireworks that just, it's just fantastic. It's such a fantastic metaphor for the capacity to see that at any moment there are innumerable causes and conditions and part of what practice in training the mind can do is teach you bits and pieces of that mechanism for yourself and allow you to generalize that it needs to be true for others as well as yourself because we're all of one sort of fundamental you know biological physiochemical entity so let me let me let me uh, pose as a this is a scenario that's uh, reenacted in many iterations on retreat. A person will come in and see me in an interview and they they say, you know, how are you? And they say, I'm so annoyed. The person next to me has come on retreat with a cold and they're sniffling, they're blowing their nose, they're coughing, and they're not even coughing in their sleeve, they're coughing. And the whole time that I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, why did they come on retreat? Why don't they stay in their room? They should have stayed home. They're sick. This is ridiculous. The manager said, please sneeze in your elbow. 
why are they here? Even when they're not sneezing, I'm thinking about why irritable things are things about them. Two or three days later, or four or five days later, they come in and they say, you know what? I was sitting this morning and a person came in and they started in with the sneezing. And I thought to myself, oh, I feel so bad for them. This, it really, they're in so much pain. They're really, they're struggling so much. You know, it's fortunate I don't have that because they must be so uncomfortable with it. And they must be so disappointed. They came on this retreat and they clearly feel so bad the whole time. How did that happen <laughs> neurologically? Well, you know, you don't know also whether to we, the week after they go home. <laughs> you know, it, it's a lot of good press inside a retreat. <laughs> but then there's sort of the bounce back. Yeah, but in the middle... So in the, the middle of the retreat, many different things are happening where you're actively learning to pay attention to your, to the construction of your truth and to seeing its relative nature. That's the purpose. Yeah. A. B, when you take down, like you notice when the, the fan went off, yeah. it got so quiet. But when you came in here, you probably barely even noticed that the fan was on. Yeah. So on the one hand, you don't know at the beginning of a retreat whether somebody would have actually said, sorry, you have a cold, and that would have been it. But because all this other distraction went away, yeah. now little irritations. I mean, in, the, in our research project, people's auditory thresholds changed. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we, we actually observed um, the, the consequences of hearing the door close in the bathroom became, you know, <laughs> it was like jarring. We and get more notes. <laughs> You get notes about... And Please tell the people not to slam the door in the toilet at night. Right. So, so now that's actually neuroplasticity at work. Backwards. Uh. But it isn't backwards. It simply is yeah. that when you take down the stimulation, yeah. the th sensory thresholds change. Yeah. This is well understood from sensory deprivation. So you're coming here, and there's a kind of sensory deprivation while there's this humanistic, you know, high-value morality play going on. There's also the opportunity for every... I, I was sitting here thinking, well, be, should I say anything about... So if in this time your aches and pains have now become more predominant, don't fight with the breath. Go look at, you know, what's more predominant in the retreat. You have a chance to feel all this decaying body, right? <laughs> this, this thing that ever wants more comfort and there's no comfort and there's adventitious <laughs> suffering even with the best food, you know. <laughs> so, so I think it's not unex, unexpected that there's this initial sense of irritation. Yeah. And then because of the beauty of the practice, there is the space explicitly to, to see how limited the self-centered thoughts were. And they're just self-centered thoughts. And you're in this training environment. So are you suggesting that it is A or B, A being the teachings of kindness and compassion being the path to happiness, or in fact, the uh, attention really settling down and seeing that one causes oneself aggravation by the continuing litany 
of grievance? I think that I think that it's a skillful training, which is synergistic. So I think in the in the environment, in the prevailing value system, there are two things. One is kindness, and the other is introspection. Mm. And introspection in a context of kindness is going to yield. In, I mean, it is insight meditation. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, someone wrote me an email this morning, and they said, I'm going to quote you. The best quote you ever said was, I am the cause of most of my suffering by the habits of my own mind. So I have to write them back and say, I didn't say that. I, said, I use that phrase often because it's in the movie Kundun. Remember the movie yeah, Kundun? Yes, sure. And the young Dalai Lama in reciting the Four Noble Truths to his tutors, uh, life is suffering, then comes the second noble truth, which is the cause of suffering is desire or imperative or craving in the mind. And he, he says whatever he says, but he says it in apparently too rote of a way or too detached a way, and they tell him, stop, that wasn't good. You know, too much something, too much pride. I, some, too much something, I forgot, I have to go read, see the film again. But here it's so cute because he's a little eight-year-old, you know, and this child actor being the Dalai Lama at eight thinks for a minute and he says, I am the cause of most of my suffering because of the habits of my own mind. And that's a brilliant thing for, let's say, a brilliant thing for a 40-year-old to say, not even an eight-year-old. Mm -hmm. you know, so I think that if you change, if you make conscious bits of the mechanism, you change the probability that you will go down that same, you know, part of the maze again. You'll say, you, there, there is a little gap. And you can use the, and, and the change due to this training is embodied in learning that does represent neuro, is, is neuroplasticity because neuroplasticity is just an, an umbrella term like mindfulness <laughs> that is functioning moment to moment on small time scales, on medium time scales, and on lifetime scales. Mm -hmm. But you need to know that you're, you're already so shaped by the life you've led. I mean, you know, um, I have a friend, uh, Leah Krubitzer is a MacArthur Fellow neurobiologist at, at UC Davis. And she posed for her graduate students this lovely task of finding wild rats. Rats in the wild of the same species as the lab rats that you can get, right? These little sprague dolly hooded rats. And you know what? If you get a rat that lives in the world, its brain is vastly differently organized mm -hmm. than a rat that lives in a cage. Mm -hmm. The territory their visual cortex takes up, if they can forage around, is like twice the size. Mm -hmm. And the barrel cortex for, for the whiskers is about the same, but the auditory cortex and the olfactory cortex of the cage rats is different because they go by smell, they don't, can't see so well because there's really not much to see. So the beginning point each person is at mm -hmm. is full of so much natural response tendencies 
that, you know, you think about individualized instruction. Mm -hmm. It's not possible, but the instruction can include this is offered given your history. Mm. And because we're all experts at being who we are. I think, I think that goes along with letting, you know, seeing people do what they have to do because yeah. that's who they are. We're talking again about the changing with the neuroplasticity. I recently, I called Jack, I said, I'm going to tell you about a, a moment in consciousness that just really intrigued me, my own, and I want to teach about it, but I'm thinking two things. First of all, I'm thinking, well, what do you call that on the, uh, is that a point in the wheel, or is it this, or is it that, what is it? And I said, I'm also sh I'm sure I'll betray myself as being very unadvanced in practice. But anyway, this is, this is the moment um, where someone in my immediate family said something, someone close to me, so I have a lot of emotional investment, said something that I took offense at. I, I didn't like that they said it. So I heard it. And I, I heard that I heard it. I heard that, you know, not only the, you know, that I heard something, but I heard that. I had the awareness of displeasure at, he, at hearing it. So far, my mind is completely relaxed. The awareness of what happened, the response of uh, the emotional tone is displeasure. And there's like a, there was a clearly a space in the mind that's about to become annoyed. I go to annoyed. I have a terrier. And the terrier doesn't have a lot of space between about to. It's annoyed. It growls. Just like that. You know, if you touch him and he was sleeping, you know, it's immediate. So with me, it's not. I'm not a terrier, but I, there's an aspect of my mind that is. But in between, I, I, I don't like that. I heard that. I don't like it. And there's like the impulse to growl in the mind and the decision not to. I said, I'm not doing that. Nancy Reagan, just say no. I'm not doing it. I said, so where, I said, so where is that? And how would you teach that? What did the Buddha say? What is that? So. I think that's the point. Yeah. I think that's very high, high attainment. <laughs> the impulse to growl is, re is resistant. I mean, you know, there, this is, I think there's not an appreciation enough of the degree to which we are intelligent and ourselves non-consciously. So an enormous amount, we talk about the visual system putting together this rich world. We have a psychology that's as rich and our reactions to what we hear and our appraisals of perceived slights and threats and judgments. This all goes on extremely rapidly and below often the level of conscious awareness. However, these practices, because you're spending time looking at your mind, you actually begin to have a change in the threshold of what's conscious and non-conscious. That is a skill that allows for there to be some implementation of choice. <coughs> that, to me, feels like mm -hmm. what so annoyance does not need to arise in the mind. It's, it's another you can be annoyed, but you don't. I mean, what? there's a whole spectrum here. It's like, are you going to cause suffering? I mean, yeah. d d to it doesn't... To myself, even. Well, I, I mean, you, can, you got annoyed. 
okay, how, how much, <laughs> what chain reaction are you going to qu quench yeah. or are you going to feed? Yeah. And for some conditions, you just, like a, what a toddler doesn't get you pissed, yeah. or it might get you pissed, yeah. but you see as a toddler. <laughs> we're toddlers too. And so I think it's the deep point is that when there is affective arousal, there's also with it a set of choices. Yeah. And you can select in a very rapid way yeah. a skillful behavior, even in the presence of, you know, feeling angry. Well, I had, I had the feeling that, that I had an option. You can, get, you can get angry. Why not? Yeah. So I won't. And I felt, the, the feeling I felt with that was like I had rescued myself. Like, whoa, like averted <laughs> some, or, you know, like really didn't have to do that one, you know. And so isn't that great? I mean, I think it's great. But so I asked him, so I, I'll ask you, I asked him, which Buddhist thing would you think that is? What do you think that is? He had a good answer. He said, what um, he said, I think it's wise effort. And notice that the mind does not have, um, Notice if the mind is empty of um, um, un uh, what's it called of um, not pleasant um, non salubrious uh, what's the right word unwholesome, unwhelsome. there you uh, go you have a and that the the absence of unwholesome uh, factors in the mind and the determination to keep it that way yeah, but so you found an unwholesome ingredient about to arise well it yeah. seems to have arisen i think it's awareness that arose like the well the, this, the like irritation <laughs> was already the piece that was non-conscious at some level so you yeah. heard this the comp the this processing happens and now you have awareness yeah. i mean paul ekman goes into this process with the dalai lama in his book emotional awareness yeah because you know he has uh 35 hours of discussion with the Dalai Lama about emotion and emotional triggers. And it's extremely well articulated in that book. The gap between the, the spark and the flame is what Matthew Ricard calls it. Yeah, yeah. So you had a spark. But getting to be conscious of the spark, yeah. this is something that is like really difficult. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and sometimes it happens, sometimes, often it doesn't. So you, in your family situation, you had a spark. Yeah. And you, you were able, because of practice and wisdom, to not cause it to become a flame. I actually do think that from practice um, and from enough experience of a non-troubled mind and enough awareness of the pleasure of non-troubled hmm. mind. That, so? Yeah. Uh, not worth it. I had one other question, but I forgot it. So, uh, but I mean, I, I then you can go ahead. Well, it's simply that um, I do think that there is learning, yeah. and and it's really important to consider this as a aspect of human development, and not stable or unstable practice. Or, I mean. We're at a moment in history where the Dharma community is interested in what the scientists have to say in a very complex dance of deep inquiry, 
and public relations. You know, when I was touched by these teachings, the research wasn't there, but it never really occurred that I needed data because the data was phenomenological and it was evident. Now I'm in the business of publishing results, so I have Buddhist teachers wanting my PowerPoint. And it's kind of like, I, this, there's something odd about this to me. There's something that's a, a moment in history where the scientists know full well how infant the state of research is, how little of the richness of human experience we can actually measure, how arduous it is to do justice to what we know would be right effort within the science. And there's an awareness that society is increasingly stressed and sped up and everybody from the army to you know the office of science and technology to the educational field is interested in mindfulness what's mindfulness the current issue of contemporary buddhism is a journal has 18 papers about this And one of the signature papers you have to read is John Kabat-Zinn's in-print retrospective declaration that 30 years ago it was a Trojan horse. Uh. That mindfulness is heartfulness is the Dharma. That's very... So how do I get that journal, by the way? I have all the PDFs. You know, I can send you... I can subscribe to it. It's in a journal. I mean, it's in academic libraries. Oh, it's in a... But you can can get any of this for a a price from the web. Uh I don't think it's freely available, but I I have the PDFs. I can email you. Anybody emails me. (coughs) But it's really interesting to see how this word is now becoming um, a placeholder for this whole full-bodied, open-handed, compassionate effort to do exactly what you just described in that moment. You know, and there are diagrams about it, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think about how does one communicate this in a secular manner with... Uh, with understanding the deep path that science is and its uncertainty, the uh, lack of relevance potentially other than inspiring you. It's like we have fitness data that says you'll mm-hmm. have less heart attacks if you you know, exercise. And we have this concept of mental fitness. And there is no end to your capacity to grow. I then run out of stuff to say. No, no, no. I want to tell you that before, I, I, well, here, maybe, I, I'm sure people have questions, but I wanted to, for near reading, I probably need my glasses, but we'll see. Because uh, they correct for here and here. But uh, I was reading Jane Eyre. You read Jane Eyre recently? My daughter, not me. <laughs> no, I, a friend of mine, right, I was in a conversation where the conversation was. Um, what books have you read twice in your life? 
And the person I was having breakfast with, who's a long friend of mine, she said, I read Jane Eyre once every few years. Hmm? Uh, and I was humbled, because I, I read Jane Eyre in the classic comic 60 years ago. So, do you remember classic comics? No. no. They, had, they, had a whole, they had 50 titles, Wuthering Heights, Deerslayer, but you could read it in a comic book, which I did. It was like high-class comic books. Uh, but I hadn't read it ever as a book, and the, the writing is elegant. But I was bringing this to class this morning because early on, yeah, for near I need this. Um, Jane is an orphan who lives with people who tremendously mistreat her and are very cruel to her. And uh, finally, she gets sent to a school, a boarding school, which is likewise very cruel and harsh. And, uh, and she, uh, she uh, bristles at it. And she notices that her friend Helen, who also is treated harshly, seems to have a very cool, calm demeanor through it all. And Helen becomes a, a kind of a, a hero to her. And um, uh, Helen is, is, is saying to her something like, you know, it, it doesn't get you any good um, to, to fight with this, the, this situation as much as you do. And Jane says, but I feel this, Helen. I must dislike those who, whatever I do to please them, persist in disliking them. I must resist those who punish me unjustly. It's as natural as that I should love those who show me affection or submit me to punishment when I feel it's deserved. And Helen says, heathens hold that doctrine. Civilized people disown it. How? I, she, I don't understand. It's not violence, Helen says, that best overcomes hate, nor vengeance that most certainly heals injury. What then? Helen says it's her belief in, in the teachings of the New Testament and what Jesus says. And she says, what does he say? And Helen says, love your enemies, bless those that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and, despite, and despitefully use you. And Jane says, well, then I should love Mrs. Reed, who treated me so badly, which I cannot do. I should bless her son, John, which is impossible. And Helen asked me to explain, and I proceeded forthwith to pour out in my own way the tale of my sufferings and resentments, bitter and truculent when excited. I spoke as I felt without reserve or softening. Helen heard me passionately to the end. I expected she'd then make a remark, but she said nothing. Well, I said impatiently, is not Mrs. Reed a hard-hearted, bad woman? And Helen says, she has been unkind to you, no doubt, because, you see, she dislikes your kind of character. But how minutely you remember all she has done and said to you. What a singularly deep impression her injustice seems to have made on your heart. No ill usage so brands its record on my feelings. Would you not be happier, Jane, if you tried to forget her severity, mm -hmm. together with the passionate emotions it excites? Life appears to me too short to be spent in nursing animosity or registering wrongs. We all, um, we, we all and must be all in one, burdened with faults in this world. Then she goes on to say something else about it, but because, you know, why spend your life nursing? You know, mm -hmm. Why do you go over these <clears throat> things? I thought to myself, this is Charlotte Bronte 150 years yep. ago. 
Um, well, this actually is related to work on rumination, which she's describing. That's yeah. a perfect description of rumination. And the research, uh, particularly from Mark Williams and John Teasdale, shows that um, metacognitive training through mindfulness practices lowers rumination and the, for if people with a history of clinical depression, the probability of relapse is vastly decreased mm -hmm. because of understanding the fundamental distinction between this process of rumination and the reality of your life. So that's part of what I said during the meditation. It's not a distraction. The trauma and negative affect helps you remember the episode that then, because of neuroplasticity, plays itself back so authentically. So it is axiomatic that something that you rehearse and go over and over again is in fact going to appear realer and realer. And there's this extraordinary, you know, some day I'd love to create a course, I call it Neurodharma, which is, you know, the, the your recollection is in fact a neurophysiological recreation of just enough aspects of brain activity that occurred during the original experience combined with what's been filled in in the interim. So your memory is never veridical and all new experiences are subtly shifting what you already have in long-term memory. That's just like our amazing privileged world to know, think about these sorts of things. You don't read this in, you know, Dear Abby. See, this is a very big challenge to psychology because I remember back in the 60s and 70s when people began to say the problem with people is they have buried the affect that they've had in, in difficult situations so that you should try to articulate those situations and yep. they rehearse them in my, in my way of thinking ad infinitum. They made a practice out of rehearsing them and going over and feeling the affect. And I think they re-traumatized. There is a potential, absolute potential for re-traumatization, but there is also the potential of bringing it to such a degree of vividness mm. that you can see its insubstantiality. Mm. If you have it in a framework of greater awareness, mm you can actually see the episode and sort of, you know, spit it up. Mm. You, can, you can have, it's a cognitive emetic. So, <laughs> I never no, have no, no, thought no. of that before, but... <laughs> I was, I there, there, Laurie Leach is doing this with trauma victims. Yeah. I mean, they're, 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 you, can you can actually titrate um, safety zones and recollection of trauma and um, you can do this in a balanced way with awareness so that I mean yeah it's not everybody in the primal scream mm. we've moved beyond that I was in a workshop once uh, I don't remember what kind of was a, anyway leading it in some capacity who knows what but it wasn't it wasn't silent so at dinner time 
at least uh, on the last day, people were talking to each other at the table, and somebody said to somebody else, I've noticed that this whole five days or weekend or however long we've been together, you don't eat any uh, vegetables. You don't even eat cooked vegetables. Why is that? And the person went on to say, you know, as a child, my mother was very concerned about my health, and uh, she insisted that I eat cooked vegetables because she thought they had vitamins in it. And every day I couldn't leave the table because of the cooked vegetables, and she really, really thought about it for a long time. And really, she, you know, like Jane, disabused, you know, recounted a terrible amount. Terrible experience, da, da, da. and she got it all finished. And the woman who asked her said, "That was a long time ago." <laughs> and all of a sudden, I don't know what the long-term effect of what, but you know, as you say, you know, you rehearse it. And you, you know. So did she put the fork in the asparagus and go like this? interesting. No, I don't think so, but that was, you know, when you get a moment of, that was a long time ago. That was then, this is not now. Right. Yeah. People do have those moments on retreat where they say that was then, this was now. I changed my mind. That would, you know, that the tricycle has a day in the park every year of celebration and, and speeches and Dharma teachings, and it's called Change Your Mind Day. And I wanted to call the first book I wrote, I Changed My Mind. And the publishers turned it down. They said, no one's going to know what you're talking about. They'll say, you know, say, what's the name of your book? You'll say, I Changed My Mind. they say, yes, or what? <laughs> but it's a very in-joke, I Changed My Mind. Yeah, well, then, you, then, then, then it became uh, Sharon Begley's Change Your... Change Your Train brain. Your Train Your Mind. Change, change your, your brain. brain. So wait a minute. So now we should at least end up with that. Because you all get that phrase, train your mind, change your brain. Everybody gets that? Or but I know? say, shop at Costco, change your brain. <laughs> <laughs> that is the higher teaching. This is the esoteric teaching. <laughs> Which is simply to say that it's just a funny truism that's marketing because <laughs> what is it that supports your mind if in, in a society that doesn't link the embodied brain in a situated environment as sort of an integrated thing, there is an inherent duplicity. It's, it's dualistic to sort of of course, if you train your mind, you will change your brain. And how else do you change your brain? Do you go in and, you know, put the wrench in, and then now my mind's going to be different? Well, maybe with shock therapy and, and drugs, the answer to that is yes. But in fact, given an embodied brain, the only thing you have is learning and skill and what supports all change that you have any access to an unconscious reality to, to is going to have a correlate. So it's, we, it's yeah. just this moment of awareness in the society that makes this phrase novel. It change your situation, change your brain, because the, the 
Your brain is constantly changing. It takes three hours in a new visual environment for dendritic spines in your primary visual cortex to start retracting and disappearing and new ones growing so that your visual system is glandularly, biologically molded to the spatial frequency, color, and illumination contours of your visual environment. And this goes on constantly. It is so adaptable that there is this funny thing that's out there as if I'm going to change and my brain won't change or I'm going to do something. I mean, the maintenance of your habits has to do with the dynamic maintenance of patterns in your brain. And, and, And so... Things are constantly changing, mm-hmm. biologically, yeah. and you make a little change, and then you reinforce it, and now you have a little bit of reorganization. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking about you, you have a stroke, and you learn to write with your left hand. Yes, well, way. just yeah. think about the strokes we don't need to have, and you can... <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm actually jumping out of my seat with excitement, because I, this has become the field where the science and the spiritual is meeting. This, this exact research is going on in science having to do with these spiritual things. It's come, it's, this is it. It's coming together now. It's fabulous. I, I mean, I'm excited about it. That's nice. <laughs> Susan is the artist who made this. That's Susan beautiful. I love this. This is great. Um, it, yes, and, and such is, is what we bank on for raising funds. <laughs> because it's very expensive and it's not mainstream so much yet. But getting there. Let's go. Go ahead. Um, so first I want to say wow. <laughs> <laughs> and then I want to go back to what you were talking about earlier uh, about our encoding abilities. And so are we better encoders when we're younger, when we're 30 and 40? Because those people aren't forgetting short term. So they're, they're, you know, I'm not an ex- my, some of my colleagues are experts in memory who work at our center and at the Center for Neuroscience. So I actually don't know the exact trajectory. What I do know is that around 30 is the optimal brain cell constituents. You actually are not kind of fully cooked till you're about 28 to 30. You know, every couple of years we push when you're, you're adult in terms of your brain. I mean, the fact that we have 18 and you have all these legal and mortal responsibilities and you, you're, you're, you're a decade away from having a frontal cortex that's actually fully myelinated is, is remarkable. And um, so 30 turns out to be the sort of peak of the whole physical system and then it's slowly... <laughs> going down. So it's funny that you mentioned 30. Um, and yes, there, is, there are trade-offs because 30-year-olds can have faster reaction times and better memories, but their knowledge base and their context perception is, is impoverished relative to an older person who actually has a kind of perspective on the importance of things. So like, if I don't remember where my car is, okay, I'll figure it out. <laughs> it, it, th- this, whereas if you are in the full flush of the urgency, I mean, I'm, I'm currently 
oddly involved in an event the Vail Symposium is putting on that's called Functioning at Your Peak. And um, this, this, Tenzin Pradarshi connected yeah. me to these, these people. This is this Buddhist uh, uh, monk who's a chaplain at MIT and runs the Dalai Lama Center for Ethics and Transformative Values. And I'm working, they want to target young presidents uh, YPOs, it's the Young President Organization of CEOs, and it's all about world-class coaching, world-class eating, world-class fitness, world-class, you know, and it's kind of like completely the opposite of the sort of values we're, we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of now both on the panel and they want me to moderate it, <laughs> I think. But we've been discussing the problem with striving. So the the 30-year-old's agenda is impoverished relative for, for many, you know, who are highly successful and competent. So is it, what is it you want to remember? Mindfulness, the traditional Tibetan definition, is memory, but it isn't memory for the object of meditation. It's memory for why memory of the object for meditation is important which is the whole path. That's great. That's great. I, I, we're going to run out of time, but I was going to say, but you, you alluded to this about these times now. Everybody says, well, the times were always difficult, but they, they, they weren't so cataclysmically frightening, I don't think, as in terms of planet, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And here's this teaching, and you know, all over the world, there are people who recognize His Holiness and this, you know, that like they recognize the Coca-Cola script, you know, that it's a, it's a certain, it's an iconic image. Many more people feel good when they see an image of the Dalai Lama without knowing anything about Buddhism. They know, oh, this is good, whatever it is that they see. Uh, and here we have, here we've been talking about transforming um, Regaining for our minds the natural wisdom, uncomplicated by all the clouds, that uh, living and loving together is really what we are wired to do. And we complicated the whole thing, and we've got a mess. So, you know, how are you at all hopeful that the planet is going to catch itself? And if so, Who's going to do it? His Holiness is out there, you know. What's going to happen? I'll tell you what. Well, I mean, I, I actually have some response to that. Because I was in Dharamsala for this meeting on ethics, interdependence, and the environment just uh, in October. Um, and the news really is dreadful. Um, but the possibilities are extraordinary. And I think the young people are folks who are not 30, but who are 15 to 20, 25, are feeling the, the essential um, hubris of material basis of happiness. I think that, I mean, and this is actually one of the challenges for this sort of performing at your peak, which is, you know, the one thing about a peak is you can fall off it, and what's, at what cost? So the footprint, the, ch the level of change that's required 
um, to accommodate climate change and the suffering and, and changes in dynamics of the world that it, it's going to wreak are profound, but they're not beyond human adaptability. And you can be taught to think that in systems terms. So I, I actually am hopeful that um, folks who grew up in understanding interdependencies because of the sheer training of being interconnected are going to be able to pretty easily understand that they can do good and feel good. And their basic needs, you know, we're back to Maslow, you know, they can meet their basic needs and, and take the rest. And it's not tithing, you know, but it's more like 60% you don't need and you don't have a suffer deficit in the quality of your life. So I actually, ha maybe just because I have cool kids, but I feel um, somewhat hopeful because okay. to not feel hopeful is not very adaptive. <laughs> you know what, you, you know. But I think you need to be realistic, and the situation is quite horrible. <laughs> so the image that I carry in my mind with a lot of enthusiasm for the last year is the image of people in Cairo and the square all over the place, ding, 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 ding. Yeah. And I figure they're all young people who could say to each other, now's our chance, let's change the world, and let's live. And they could all send it to each other. Four but three, three and a half billion people are on Facebook. I mean, somebody could say, there's another way to do it. Ding, 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 ding. There will, I think it, it happens in, in little pockets, and those pockets are beginning to connect up. Mm. So Listen, I'm thrilled that you came. Yeah. Uh, just in so general that you bailed me out, but also <laughs> that you came. So. <laughs> so people give me a gift when they come. I share it with you, so oh. it's our gift. And uh, should he come again? Yeah. <laughs> Anytime he wants to. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm honored. I'm honored. You know what? I don't do them anymore, but with you I would. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Let's, let's uh, as we let's say, think about that. in Brooklyn, let's talk. <laughs> <laughs> Coffee in a Danish. Okay. <laughs> May all beings everywhere come through this period of darkest year, darkest part of the year, moving in once again as of yesterday, as of today, as of today planet is not going anywhere, but it's starting to tilt the other way. More and more light than the planet. May we have more and more light in our hearts and minds, and collectively may this planet have more and more light in its heart and mind, and may this be a different world. And may how we go forth from here and how we meet everyone and our presence in the world be one element in sustaining that vision. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.